In the name of God, the life-giving, all-loving, and incarnate word, amen. In 1997, for reasons still a bit inexplicable to me, as a seventh grader living in Atlanta, Georgia, I became obsessed with the idea of going skiing. I'd happened upon a Warren Miller movie, and I can remember it was one segment in particular that kindled this inexplicable passion in me. It was a segment featuring a Lake Tahoe-based skier named Glenn Plake, who had a smile a mile wide and a bleached blonde mohawk about a foot and a half in radius. And as I saw Plake launching himself off cornices and arcing turns down powder fields, I thought, never have I seen something that seems as purely like play as this sport he was engaging in. And from that moment, all I wanted to do was find a way to give it a go myself. So I went to a thrift store, and I bought a one-piece ski suit, actually a women's one-piece ski suit, <laughs> and some ski poles. And all summer long in the Georgia heat, I would rollerblade around the hills of Atlanta pretending I was skiing. They put on a ski expo that year, and I convinced my mom to take me and meandered through that maze of booths of ski companies and ski magazines, and then spied in the back like a shark fin moving around the convention hall, Glenn Plake's mohawk. <laughs> I walked up to the table where he was signing posters and told him how badly I wanted to make it to the mountains and ski one day. He flashed that Glenn Plake smile and signed to Travis, my bro, ski fast and stay cool. <laughs> it became one of my most cherished possessions. And from that morning meeting Plake, all I wanted to do was find a way to make my life in the mountains one day. February 2007, I'm a freshman at a college in New Hampshire. And in some ways, my dream has come true. I'm surrounded by mountains and have a chance to ski on our college ski hill most days of the week and go to Vermont with my friends on the weekends. And yet my heart is in a kind of winter. I've never lived outside the South and the lack of natural sunlight and that New England winter is shattering me. My mom sends me a happy light to sort of soothe that seasonal affective disorder I'm suffering from, but I still can't shake the anxiety and sadness that I'm feeling. So I go to see my advisor in the English department, and she kindly says to me, you know, Travis, religion is pretty important to you. I think maybe you should go to someone faith-based to get a bit of counseling. And our college chaplain's awesome. So I make the appointment and go sit down in front of this bespectacled Alabaman, who's also a Rhodes Scholar. He's wearing the quintessential New England tweed sport coat. And I tell this man how I think I really need to get in therapy. I need some professional help. He smiles, a little twinkle in his eye, pulls out a business card and slides it across the desk to me. And on it is printed, Richard Crocker, pastoral psychoanalyst. I didn't know ministers could also be psychoanalysts, but I met with him pretty much every week for the next three years 
He never charged me a dime. And by the time I graduated, I thought just maybe I might want to go into ministry like Richard. Or if, at the very least, I want to build my life in such a way that I can be of service to others the way that Richard was to me. 1998. My family and I are living in the Bay Area for a year because of my dad's job. And my younger brother, Mac, is just as obsessed with golf as I've become with skiing. And my long-suffering, patient, loving mother spends the weekends driving Mac up and down the California coast so he can participate in golf tournaments. This particular, particular Sunday evening, they're driving back through the Redwoods. Dusk is descending and a mist is rising and those colossal trees are towering all around them when the inevitable happens, flat tire. I don't know if we even had cell phones in those days. I remember having a beeper at that period in my life. And I don't think cell service would have even been possible to get in those woods. And so my mom tells my brother to stay in the car and she starts messing with the tire iron when all of a sudden this man walks up sort of out of nowhere. He says, do you need some help? I can see that you might. Don't worry about it. I've got this. Go ahead and sit in your car. And as he's jacking up that car, they get to talking. My mom asks him what he does for a living, and he answers somewhat enigmatically. He says, well, you know, I just kind of go around helping people. He fixes the flat and walks away, and as they describe it, sort of disappears into the mist and darkness. They never hear a car start up, and they never see a taillight. My mom and brother look at one another, convinced they've probably just seen an angel. September 2021. My daughter Helen is a month old. I'm still on my paternity leave, and my partner Gracie and I are basically like babies eating when we're hungry and sleeping whenever we can find a free moment. And at 5.30 a.m., I hear that familiar sound, Helen's scream through our baby monitor. I drag myself out of bed, say, Gracie, I've got this, stumbling through the kitchen, wonder how many more weeks of such suffering we can possibly endure. I open her nursery door as the first light leaks into the room. She sees me, and a smile blossoms on her face. And I feel like my heart's going to implode or break open wide. There are times in life when we have these encounters with other human beings that leave us totally transfigured. It's like they recalibrate or rewire our lives and send us on a totally new trajectory. We're surprised, we didn't see it coming, and all of a sudden we're touched by an experience of grace that makes us want to live into joy and embody love in an entirely new way. Of course, the sacred scriptures are replete with these kind of moments of encounter. And for me... There's perhaps no story of such transfiguring encounter that's more poignant or more beautiful than this story in Luke's gospel from today, the road to Emmaus. 
And I want to reflect with you a little bit on the meaning of these story, of the experience that these disciples have as a way of seeing how we might live into a little bit more wonder, a little bit more awe, cultivate a capacity for a little bit more surprise and perhaps even love this Easter season. So to me, as sort of a literature junkie, I feel like this story, The Road to Emmaus Encounter, is like a perfectly executed short story by the gospel author. It's Easter Sunday, the evening of Easter Sunday, and these two disciples, one named Cleopas, one unnamed, are walking to a place called Emmaus. We're told it's seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And there isn't really a scholarly consensus of where the historical Emmaus is. It comes from a Semitic word that just means warm springs. But there were some warm springs about seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. So scholars think that's where they're headed. And we have to imagine that they're intensely morassed in an experience of grief. And they're feeling all the feelings we associate with the grief cycle. Their beloved teacher has just been put to death. Sadness, anger, bargaining, denial. They're feeling a wash in all of that, I have to think. Moreover, they're feeling disappointed. This is the person they'd placed all their messianic expectation in. This was the person who was going to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and accomplish liberation for all the Jewish people. They're probably even feeling a bit of fear. I mean, are the same forces that put Jesus to death coming after them? Is that why they're leaving Jerusalem that evening out of fear? And then there's got to be this kind of confusion. In Luke's gospel, this is the first, first resurrection appearance of Jesus, the risen Christ. The women go to the tomb that morning, find it empty. They talk with a couple angels who say, don't you know he's risen? Go and tell the others. They go and tell the others, most of whom continue to cower in fear in that upper room, except for Peter, who runs to the tomb, finds it empty, the grave cloths draped on the ground, and walks away in total confusion. So what are they to make of this? They're feeling this complex matrix of emotions as they walk west, and then this figure appears and walks beside them. And scholars have this interesting, some commentators will say that there's this puzzling fact that they're not able to see Jesus at first. And some commentators will say, well, it's because they're walking west and the light of the setting sun was too bright and kind of blinded their eyes. But I almost see Jesus operating in this kind of trickster mode. It's almost a little, little bit of mischief that he's working with them. And at first, they think that they're in this, this position of authority. They ask him, do you not know the things that have gone, come to pass the last few days? Are you a stranger to Jerusalem? And then, of course, by the end, he is opening the scriptures up from them in this new and transformative way. They arrive where they're going, this kind of hostile, and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going. And in ancient Near Eastern um, social customs, the norm was if you invited someone into your home or into dinner, the polite thing to do was refuse the invitation if you're that prospective guest. And you kind of like give the host an out in case they weren't being sincere and actually didn't want to have dinner with you. And so Jesus kind of plays into this cultural norm, says, no, no, I'm going to keep going. They, they beseech him to join them for dinner. He breaks the bread that automatically their eyes are opened. They know Christ for who he is. And then he vanishes. 
they get up immediately and run back to Jerusalem, the seven miles to tell the others. And I think there are a couple fascinating elements of this story that help us look at ways of cultivating the capacity for wonder and embodiment of love that these disciples also represent. Firstly, these disciples slow down enough to invite this stranger alongside them as they walk. They must be feeling anxiety, preoccupation, fear, but they still welcome him into their party. When they get to this hostel and are having dinner, I think it's, it's, it's important to note that this moment of revelation comes in a moment of fellowship as well. Even in the midst of their grief, these disciples are able to get their focus off themselves and attend to this work of hospitality with another person. They open themselves up, I think, to the possibility of surprise. Then what happens when Jesus is known to them? He vanishes immediately, which we might find is somewhat puzzling, but it's also a very necessary aspect of this story, too. I mean, think about the times in your life when you've made some sort of amazing discovery. You, you find a book that shifts your entire, wor entire worldview, and you just want to kind of dwell in those pages forever. But at some point, you've got to turn the last page and shut the cover. Think about a relationship of mentorship you've been in. Perhaps in a season of life, it's so good to be the presence of a teacher who seems that they're showing the way to you. But at some point, that teacher has to leave so you can go and embody that wisdom for yourself. And it's true with these disciples and Jesus as well. His love is known to them in such a way that their hearts burn within them. And then they need to go out just as we need to go out to embody that love in our own lives and situations and contexts. But it's important to note also what happens after this revelation occurs. They run immediately back to Jerusalem despite their fear, despite their trepidation to bring the good news to others. They move it forward. I've been puzzling a little bit this Easter season about the fact that Easter feels like a time that's so much more alive for me than Lent. In Lent, I have such a hard time taking on spiritual disciplines and fasts because it feels in a way like I'm trying to earn some sense of grace, earn some sense of God's love, when in true spirituality, I think that we make amendments of life out of a response of joy and gratitude when we receive how immense God's love is for us. And friends, we have that invitation and that opportunity to be surprised by God's love, by God's grace and presence each and every day through our encounters with one another. Because the truth is Christ lives within each and every one of you, within each and every person. There's this wonderful line of poetry by the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins that says, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I see Christ reflected in each and every one of your faces. And when we develop the capacity to slow down with those disciples, to let the stranger into our midst, 
to enjoy fellowship and the breaking of bread with others, we can encounter the risen Lord as well and also say with those disciples, do not our hearts burn within us when we experience this manner of love? I want to tell you one last story as I move to close of of a time that I experienced that sort of Christ-like transfiguring love in another person. Some of you may know Spencer Reese, an amazing priest and poet who's been here a couple times as our guest chaplain in the summers. And in fact, Spencer will be coming back this September. Spencer and I first met in seminary, indeed on the first week that I stepped onto my seminary campus. People discovered that I had a love for poetry and said, oh, you've got to meet this, this other seminarian, Spencer. He just had a poem published in The New Yorker. But I knew Spencer's biography already. There had been a beautiful and, to my mind, heartbreaking piece on his first book of poems published a few years earlier by a famous poet. For 10 years, Spencer worked as a floor salesman in the Brooks Brothers of the Mall of America. And he sent out his first manuscript over 200 times to publishers, to contests, in hope that this book would make its way out into the world. 199 rejections. And the last time he sends it out, he tells himself, this is it. If it's not taken this last time I send it out, I'm going to have to turn my energy and focus to other things. The book wins a contest that's judged by a poet named Louise Glick, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature last year. It launches Spencer's career. She says to him, Spencer, I think we should get the title poem placed in the New Yorker. He said, Louise, I've sent poems to the New Yorkers for years. No one's going to take this. She said, there's a password. She gets the poem published. James Franco, pre-cancellation, makes a short film out of it, and Spencer's career explodes. And I mention this not just because of the ways I've experienced Jesus' love embodied in Spencer, which I have in a variety of profound ways. Spencer is so gentle, and in fact, when he was here last summer, he was looking at some poems of mine, giving me encouragement, and said, Travis, I don't think you're quite over um, the experience of your mom dying. There's all this anger here. Why don't we take care of that? So Lonnie graciously furnished us with a stack of plates from Browse and Buy, and we went and smashed them in a dumpster so I could exorcise myself of that anger. That's the kind of friend Spencer is, and he'll always take time to provide that kind of love and gentleness and encouragement. But I evoke his name today and invoke his name because of one line he wrote in one poem in his second book called The Road to Emmaus. The title poem in that book is over 20 pages long, and it's actually the longest poem that was ever published in Poetry Magazine the most prestigious poetry journal around. And it's a sort of love letter and an elegy to Spencer's longtime friend and AA sponsor named Durrell. And near the climax of that poem, Spencer writes the line, all I know is that the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. All I know is the more he loved me, 
the more I love the world. I want you to think for a moment of the person who's shown love to you in this world in the most immense and intense way. That sort of love that comes with no strings attached, that's totally constant, that loves and values you for exactly who you are. Think about it. It could be the love of a spouse. could be the love of a parent or a child, of a sibling or a friend. Just try to feel into it for a second, the flavor, the tone and tenor of it. And then do whatever you can to just amplify that sense of love to an infinite degree. Multiply it by however many digits you can. I think that something like that love has to be the love that God holds for each and every one of us. We see evidence of it everywhere in the grandeur of the creation all around us, in, this, in one another, in this sort of complicated, beautiful, messy dance of figuring out how, out how to become more selfless, become more Christ-like, how to be in relationship with one another, not just as friends, but as fellow human beings. And my invitation to us as we live into these 50 days of Easter is to find ways to get in touch with that immense love that God has for us so that we can love the world to an even greater degree. That we can slow down like those disciples and welcome the stranger in and know Christ to us as we meditate on scripture and the breaking of bread with others and that fellowship and hospitality. May we be able to say with those disciples, did not our hearts burn within us when we experienced that love and community with friends and strangers? May we be able to say with Spencer as well, all I know is the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. And then may we have the grace to go and be that love to others in all we do and say and are. Amen.